Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Susie read verses 10 to 18 a moment ago. We're going to take, as you were supposed to, but we're going to, to, to take that text, which I want read both weeks, in two parts. This morning we'll consider verses 10 to 13 only, and then next week we'll look at verses 14 to 18. So two weeks on this passage that, that was read this morning. Welcome to Christ the King. If you are visiting or haven't been with us in the last few weeks or for a while, we are in an ongoing study of Hebrews. I hope you'll keep your Bible open there as we return to it this morning. Hebrews is a written sermon. It was sent to a house church. Perhaps in Rome is a good guess, probably in around 60 AD. It was written so that its recipients hearing this sermon would have faith, by which I do not mean it was written so that the recipients would come to faith. That had already happened. What the pastor writing Hebrews is after, if you have been here, you know this, is their faithfulness, their perseverance, their endurance. So I've grown quite fond of quoting Hebrews 10 verse 36, to remind us of the pastor's goal in Hebrews, you have need of endurance, he writes, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Or, to use the language that we encountered two weeks ago, when we were in chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to look there, the pastor says, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay attention. <laughs> That's what still needs to be ringing in our ears as we move through chapter 2 of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the pastor asked in verse 3. Do you know what the primary way to not neglect our great salvation is? We're going to come to it in a couple of weeks in chapter 3, verse 1, but you can just look ahead there on the page. The pastor says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That's the strategy of this sermon. The witness of the book of Hebrews points chiefly to the Son. The pastor writing Hebrews clearly believes... And I, as your pastor, also believe that considering Jesus is the primary way we pay attention. That's how we ensure we don't neglect such a great salvation. That's what we're doing this morning. My goal in this sermon is to focus our minds and hearts on the Son who is Jesus. In fact, that's a primary purpose of our weekly worship, isn't it? Our Lord said at the Last Supper to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. He says it now to us every week as we come to the communion table. We are to remember, to consider Jesus. That's what this sermon is about, ultimately. It's what my sermon this morning is about, ultimately. I want you, if I can get you to do this, I want you to marvel at Jesus. 
I want you to delight in Jesus. I want you to treasure every single thing that we have the chance to see about Jesus in our text this morning. Why? Why do I want you to do that? Because I want you to see afresh who the Son is. What the Son has done. So that you can then look at your life and your daily activities and the trials and the temptations you face and you can be ready. (laughs) Ready to live your life this week following Jesus. Ready to endure suffering that you may not know is coming. Ready to resist temptation. Ready to align your priorities in life with the kingdom of God and ready to keep those priorities in place when your family or your friends or your co-workers or your neighbors are pressing you not to do that. I mean... (laughs) We don't know the exact pressures that this little church in Rome was facing. We know they were real ones. Maybe it was the threat of impending persecution under Emperor Nero. Maybe it was some other kind of societal pressures, whether local or in bigger scale, to abandon their Christian identity. Maybe it was something else. Whatever it was, and whatever it is, that could lead us to neglect our salvation, whatever external pressures, whatever internal drifting away, the pastor writing Hebrews has one primary strategy, and it's mine too. Consider Jesus, he says. So to help them do that, the pastor uses words. It's all we pastors have. (laughs) He writes a sermon. To save the men and women in a house church in Rome in the first century. And all through his sermon, he writes about the Son. Because as chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So, pay attention. The sermon this morning will be now in two parts as we aim to consider Jesus once again. First of all, A few of you talked to me last week and said that I I lost you in last week's sermon, which I'm sorry about. So first what I want to do is that I want to consider, in part reviewing a bit from last week, what God has done in the Son. Part one. We'll review a bit of the context we saw last week. We'll look a bit more at verse 9 than we did last week, and then we'll take up just the last part of verse 10 all under the heading, what God has done in his son. And then secondly, we'll consider as much as we can, though painfully omitting some things, we'll consider secondly, why what God has done in his son is fitting. (laughs) You see that right there at the start of verse 10. The pastor writes, for it was fitting. What God has done in the Son is somehow fitting. So we'll consider that. Interesting statement. And look at then the first part of verse 10 and ever so briefly at verses 11 through 13. Not very fancy, I guess, in terms of a sermon outline, but that's what I see. So here we go. First, let's consider from this passage what 
God has done in his son. Only, let me back up just a little bit. Last week, I tried to say that Hebrews is all about the son bringing about the promise. Perhaps it would be better to say it's really all about God through the son bringing about the promise. Just a little difference there. But I think it matters. Because as we find in our text this morning, behind all that the Son has done is the Father's will. Jesus talks like that. John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So what has the Father done in the Son? Well, last week we began to say that fundamental to what the Son has done is the fact that the Son became a man. The point then is finally that he did so. Why? Because the Father willed that. The Son has always been God. The Son has not always been a man. But the Son became a man. And the Son remains a man now, and the Son will be a man forever because the Father willed it. Most of chapter 1, if you've been here of Hebrews, most of chapter 1 is focused our attention on the fact that Jesus Christ, even now, sits enthroned as a physical human being in his resurrected body in the heavenly world at the right hand of the Father. But we have questions. Why is he there? What's the significance of the fact that the Son, as a man, is now seated on the throne of God? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our lives as we live them now, day by day, and for all eternity? What's the point? What is the great salvation, to use the language of verse 3 from chapter 2, what is the great salvation that Jesus has brought about? Well, if you've been with us, you know that moving from this understanding of the exalted son in chapter one, the pastor then begins to connect that to the world to come in verse five from last week. So to show us what it means that the son is seated at the right hand of the father, the pastor begins to quote from Psalm eight in verses six to eight of chapter two. And the basic point just to review again from last week, or to make clear if it wasn't, is that it has always been God's intent that human beings would be crowned with glory and honor, that they would rule under God, but as his image ruling over the whole world, they would have dominion over everything which would be put in subjection under their feet. It's life as it was meant to be, once was, and will be again. But it's not life now, right? Instead of gloriously ruling over creation, men and women suffer and die. So how do we attain to the destiny that Psalm 8 holds out? How will we finally be saved and come to eternal life with God? Well, that was verse 9, wasn't it? which we only mentioned so briefly last week. Verse 9, if you're looking there. But we see him. We see 
Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, we didn't comment at all on what is a very key theological phrase in that verse. By the grace of God. God stands behind the activity of the Son. Now, in verse 9, the pastor uses the language of Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus, you see. So when he says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that is a reference to the mortal life of Jesus. From the moment of his incarnation in Mary's womb to his death on the cross, it was his life in a world that was under the power of sin and death. That was the little while that he was lower than the angels. This is not the world as it was originally meant to be. That's why in this world the Son was lower than the angels. Why? Because the Son of God became subject to death, just as we are. And angels are not. Now, during his earthly life, of course, this little while, Jesus kept covenant by doing God's will always, ultimately leading, culminating in his suffering, the fate of death, which was also the Father's perfect will for him. But if you're looking at verse 9 carefully, that's not what we see now, right? What we see now is the Jesus who was made lower than the angels, but who now is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that he underwent. That's the exaltation. We're back to the heavenly scene of chapter 1. So the crowned with glory and honor language in verse 9 there, which is taken from the psalm, now is applied to the resurrection of the Son, Jesus, and his ascent to the divine throne, from which, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he is now able to bestow to us the benefits of being a merciful and faithful high priest. That's a conceptual realm we're moving into in the weeks to come. <laughs> Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. That's all I was trying to say last week. <laughs> as the fulfillment of Psalm 8, Jesus makes it possible for us to finally come to the place where he is forever to dwell with God, where we will live in covenant faithfulness in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why we ended last week reading from Revelation chapter 22. Okay, only now I want to make a further point that while all of that is about the Son in a very clear way, the pastor also wants us to recognize something here, and that is that it is all what God has done. Now, to sense this, let's go here to the end of verse 10. It says in the end of verse 10 that he, meaning God, he made the founder of their salvation, that means Jesus, God made Jesus perfect through suffering. Now, I suggest to you 
that the end of verse 10 that I just read is, is really another way of saying what verse 9 has already said. To say that God made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering is another way of talking about him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, died and was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Notice that in both verses 9 and 10, God is the actor. In verse 9, who is it that made Jesus lower than the angels and later crowned him? Well, the answer is God did those things. Just as in verse 10, God made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is what God has done. And to fill out what that means, just let's talk about that language at the end of verse 10 because it's dense and wonderful. There's two key terms that I want to explain from that part of the verse. First, the, the ESV translation you have says, God made the founder of their salvation perfect. If all you take away from this morning is a sense of what that word founder means, I'll be very happy. <laughs> the translation that I would prefer here for founder would be pioneer. I like that better. The son as Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. The Greek word, you Greeklings that are here, the Greek word is archegos. Arche, the first with a compound of the verb meaning to go or to lead. The first to lead. It can be translated in different ways. It can be translated head, chief, founder, originator, source, origin. But here's one commentator that I especially liked. I'm going to quote him at length. Just listen to this. He writes, One basic idea clings to the word in all its uses. An archegos is someone who begins something in order that others may enter into it. The word is used to describe the person who begins a family so that someday others may be born into it, who founds a city in order that others may someday live in it, who founds a school, a philosophic school, so that others may follow into the truth that that person has already discovered. And Archegos is the one who blazes a trail for others to follow. Let us take an analogy, the commentator continues, suppose a ship is on the rocks. And the only way to safety is for someone to swim ashore with a line so that once the line is secured, others might follow. The one who is first to swim ashore will be the archegos of the safety of the others. This is what the writer means when he says that Jesus is the archegos of our salvation. Jesus has blazed the trail to God for us to follow. Now you think about that. We said a couple of weeks ago that salvation is ultimately a place. We will go where he now is. That's not just some crazy mystical language from Hebrews, is it? Jesus says it, John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself. Do you hear that? That where I am, you may be also. He is the pioneer, the founder of our salvation. God made him that. Secondly, then, the pastor says Jesus is that. He's made, uh, Jesus is the founder or pioneer of our salvation. He is made perfect. Now, we're still in the end of verse 10 there. It says, God made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what could it mean to say Jesus was made perfect? Now, you obviously see the challenge here, right? How can the eternal Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God, how can that be made perfect? Obviously, we can say that given the fact that Hebrews itself will insist on Jesus' sinlessness, this does not mean that somehow Jesus is perfected morally as if he was somehow deficient in that category. I think the key here is to realize something very crucial, and that is that the word translated as to be made perfect appears in the Old Testament of the consecration by God of priests to indicate that they are now qualified for their office. In other words, what Christ suffered was somehow necessary to qualify him to be our pioneer, to reach God's intended goal for him and for us. Or, to bring in where verse 17 is going to take us next week marvelously, Jesus' sufferings are explicitly what God uses to qualify him to be our high priest. Or consider Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, which says this all very clearly. Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Although he was a son, it says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. You see, it's not that Jesus was disobedient and then became obedient. It's that Jesus proved himself obedient through suffering. He had to succeed where you and I fail. Because we've all, been, we've all suffered, we've all been tempted, and we've failed to be perfected by that. But by his obedience in the anguish of his sufferings, which is more than just the cross, but ultimately is about the cross, Jesus proved that he always trusted God. He was therefore made perfect, made to be our high priest through suffering. And you know a little bit about that, what that means. We're going to talk a lot more about it next week. It means that God is now able to fully identify and fully sympathize with us. This is radically good news that the son's human experience, in particular his sufferings, enables him to help us in our sufferings and our temptations, about which we'll say a lot more next week. This is what God has done. 
brothers and sisters. He is made the founder of our salvation, the pioneer, perfect through suffering. Or, to go back to verse 9 one last time, we see him who for a little while was made by God lower than the angels, now crowned by God with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Which now brings me to the second part of my, my sermon, which is to try to quickly address, if that's what God has done, how is that fitting? Because if you look there again at the beginning of verse 10 in our text, what's the point now that the pastor wants to make after he's considered what God has done in the Son? You see it? He says it right at the beginning of verse 10, for it was fitting. And you have to jump to the end of the verse to complete the thought, which is what we just talked about. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see? That was the appropriate thing. That accords with the way things had to be somehow. The fact that the Son took on flesh and lived as a man in perfect covenant faithfulness with the Father and suffered and died and was exalted and thereby brought about our salvation, there is something deeply right about that. Or, to put it the opposite way, there wasn't anything arbitrary about this. All of this happened exactly as it should have happen in some sense as it had to happen in some way as it was meant to happen the pastor saying in verse 10 that it was fitting for god to lead his people to glory through the suffering of his son jesus christ and i see quickly two reasons here why that is so why what happened to jesus was fitting Let's just read the verse. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The first reason I see for why it was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through suffering is that it shows us who God is or what God is like. You look back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, you find there it says that God has spoken by his Son, through whom also he, that is God, created the world. And here in our verse 10, clearly the one for whom and by whom all things exist here is God. The pastor's saying it was appropriate. I don't know how to talk about this. It was appropriate to the character and purposes of the sovereign God, the one who is the source and the goal of all things. It was appropriate for that God to use the suffering of his son to bring about the ultimate purpose he has for you and me. Or to put it another way, Jesus Christ's suffering was an expression of the character of God. Now, can you just 
try to think about that this week? This is, this is absurd in the first century context of multiple religions that you could compare this to. It's absurd. That something about the suffering of Jesus reveals God's nature. It wasn't other than God's nature. It wasn't a reluctant decision on God's part. It's not as if God somehow agreed to do this just in order to fix things, as if he were boxed into it because our sin kind of put him in a corner and he really would rather not, preferred not to have done. It's not what the Bible says. The cross of Jesus Christ was the divine plan from the beginning because it would be the cross that would reveal the heart of God. You see, in a way that that heart could not be revealed in any other way. The cross wasn't plan B, brothers and sisters. It was always the plan. And the history of Israel and the old covenant pointed forward to it. That's going to consume the argument of Hebrews in just a few more chapters. We already know this has to be the case, don't we? Because you remember back to verse 2 again in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 2. This is the God who achieves his purposes for all things through the Son. Do you remember this? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now I challenge you to think about this. The destiny of all things precedes their origin. Do you see that? This is the Father's intention. Do you remember what Peter said when Peter preached on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23? Pentecost, the Apostle Peter declares, Jesus Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The pastor See, you've got to bring this into life. The pastor wants these Christians in this little house church to feel something of the way in which the suffering of their Savior was appropriate to God's character in order to bring about his eternal purposes for them and for you through the Son. Here's how one writer puts it. The willingness of his son to suffer is the brightest display of the father's glory in all the universe. This Christianity, folks, I'll say it again. The willingness of his son to suffer is the brightest display of the father's glory in all the universe. You cannot Exhaust that thought this week, if you try. It was fitting, the pastor says, because of who God is. That's the first reason. So then, time is off and up, and, and there's, one, there's a second reason. There's a second reason that I see here that is, that is linked to it and is just as marvelous, and I can't get my head around it. The second reason I see is that the pastor says it was fitting that God should make Jesus perfect through suffering. The one for whom and by whom all things exist, God. 
to make Jesus perfect through suffering, I'll put it this way, because you and I are part of God's family. Now, there's actually a whole lot here, so just track with me really quick as we do this very briefly. I'm, I'm only a page away from the end. You see the, third, you see the third clause in verse 10. Let me read it to you. The verse begins, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, here comes the clause, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you see what the pastor calls his recipients there and you? He calls them many sons. Now, the language there is sons because it's in relation to the son. But you could say children. This is men and women. The pastor will shift, in fact, to children in verse 14 below. The point is this. It was fitting that God do this because you are part of his family, Christian. Verses 11 to 13 are, I'm submitting for you entirely about that. Look at verse 11. For, why was it fitting? For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, that's high priestly language. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's you and me, all have one source, it says. Literally in the Greek it says, are all of one. The point here is that Jesus and those whom Jesus dies to make holy have something in common. And there's lots of debate over exactly what that refers to. I'm in agreement with what the ESV is pointing us to here, that in some sense, Jesus and you and I have the same Father. We're part of the same family. Why? Because God is our Father. I think that's what the meaning has to be here. Now, of course, the, the exact way in which God is Jesus' Father isn't exactly the same as the way God is our Father. I mean, you and I are not eternally existent with the Father, for starters. There's also a big difference between being the one who sanctifies, or makes holy, and those who are sanctified, right? I'm not saying it's no distinction. We'll talk more about what that entails next week. But... At some point, the, we had to become sons and daughters of God through faith in the Son. It is for that reason that God made him our pioneer. C.S. Lewis famously writes in Mere Christianity, you've probably heard this quote, the Son of God became a man to enable men, men and women, to become sons of God. The emphasis here is not on what makes us different from Jesus. The emphasis here on, is on what makes us like Jesus. And as we come towards the end of this sermon, let me suggest that this isn't where you and I often go in our thoughts about the Son, is it? In fact, I think we almost sort of feel like it might be wrong to think this way. It isn't. Above all other sources of identity in your life, Christian, fundamental to everything else, if you're a Christian, is the fact that you are a daughter or son of God. So maybe here's an angle on the gospel that we don't talk enough about. The son became a human being by the will of the father. God the father then made the son as Jesus perfect through suffering. Why? Because God the father wanted you to be part of his family. 
There are many sons and daughters he's bringing to the glory of Psalm 8, verse 10 says. Jesus talked about this too. Mark 3, verse 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's a deep and wonderful truth here. It was fitting that God made the pioneer of our salvation perfect through suffering because you are his child. So finish verse 11. That is why he, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Look at verse 12. This is what Jesus says. I will tell of your name, that is God's name, to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you know where that's from? That's Psalm 22, verse 22. Those are not the only lines from Psalm 22 that Jesus has ever spoken. Psalm 22 begins with the words, Our Lord uttered from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go and look at Psalm 22 this week in your small groups and you'll see that verse 22 of Psalm 22, the verse that our pastor quotes, is the turning point of that psalm. The suffering one has become the exalted one. Jesus, who suffers death for the sake of his brothers and sisters, is now crowned with glory and honor at God's right hand. And so he praises the Lord for answering his prayer, for rescuing him from his enemies, even from death itself. And what then is it that that exalted son, the man Jesus Christ proclaims as he sits enthroned in the heavenly realm? It's this. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Dear friends, I'm telling you that means here in this room. I read the pastor here to mean that as the gospel is proclaimed in this place, Christ himself speaks it to those who are his own. That as you and I lift our voices in praise to God, you are not alone. Christ himself joins us. You let these concepts begin to sink in. Jesus is proud to call you his sister, his brother. He's not ashamed. And then to declare to you what God is like, even to lead you in singing God's praises. You could say that he does so by the presence of his own Holy Spirit. Finally then, we have verse 13. It's just more wonderfulness. And again, the pastor writes, quoting here words that come from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. He quotes them, but he puts them on the lips of the exalted Lord Jesus. I will put my trust in him, Jesus says. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, again, you look at Isaiah 8 this week in your small groups. In Isaiah 8, the prophet is trying to assure the people of Judah that this coming invasion from the Assyrian army isn't going to be the end. God's kingdom will finally triumph 
through a Davidic ruler. So Isaiah summons the people to fear the Lord. He becomes the example to them all. I will put my trust in him, Isaiah says. But now that's on the lips of the exalted Jesus. And the words become an even stronger encouragement for you, you see, in the face of whatever opposition you may face. That the risen Lord Jesus joins you in saying, I will put my trust in him. He joins with you as the next verse says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, this would have been the strongest possible encouragement to some small house church in the vast Roman city. A stronger encouragement than they could ever have hoped for. They are brothers and sisters of Jesus. God the Son who now as a man sits in the throne room of the universe. That's you. You're his brother and sister. Consider Jesus. Consider what God has done in his Son and consider why that is eternally fitting. He is not ashamed of you. How can we ever be ashamed of him? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. very good to us, Lord. How can we even see the full extent what privilege is provided to us?